Okay, let's turn to the book of Jeremiah. As I even say it, I remember coming back from India and um, had layover time in Frankfurt and went to the uh, Reich Museum. I think I'm pronouncing it right. But um, they have a lot of Rembrandts there. And I, they have one picture of, uh, that Rembrandt did, and it shows Jeremiah. It was pretty accurate, at least the facial expressions, because he's called the weeping prophet. And Rembrandt captured that aspect of it, except his clothing was, was way too rich looking for me because it didn't fit. I don't see him that way as Rembrandt did. But, but as we begin the book, I'll take a little time and give a little bit of an introduction on how we will divide the book up. It, it divides nicely into three different sections. And that is, this is going to be up to chapter 30, before the fall. And when I say before the fall, what we have in view here is um, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon coming down and eventually laying siege and taking uh, the city. Chapters 34 to 46 is the fall itself. And then from 46 to 52 after the fall. So the book of Jeremiah is going to be before, during, and after the fall. Primarily the message is to Judah, and then up to verse 46, 46 to 52, the surrounding nations, and then the fall of Jerusalem, of course, Babylon. The time frame here is about his ministry was from um, 627 B.C. to 580 the books that would be contemporary to Jeremiah would be Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Daniel, and Ezekiel. All would have been prophesying during this same period of time. The thing that's different about Jeremiah is when you read the other prophets, they don't put too much of themselves into the prophecies. They're just, thus, thus saith the Lord. Uh, not so with this book. Jeremiah is different and that is largely autobiographical. Uh, he tells a lot of his own personal history. And um, let me just lay out 10 different things uh, that we're going to cover as we make our way through the book of Jeremiah. First of all, he was born a priest at Anathoth, which is just a little bit north of Jerusalem. He was chosen to be a prophet even before he was born. And we're going to see that in chapter 1 tonight. He was called to this prophetic office while still being very young. We don't know for sure. Could have been late teens. Could have been um, no older than 20. Uh, He was commissioned by the Lord to be a prophet. That's also in chapter 1. He began his ministry during the reign of King Josiah. Uh, King Josiah is going to be the last of of the good kings in Judah. And he was a mourner at his funeral. They were... They knew each other well. They were contemporaries. And um, Josiah was the one that brought a lot of reform. And we'll actually go to Second um, Chronicles and talk about his reforms. He was forbidden to marry because of the terrible times in which he lived. He did not have a popular message. And he never had one convert. Now, I think of Noah. The Bible says that Noah was faithful in his generation. And um, this gets sidetracked here real easy. If you talk judgment and truth, it's not a popular message. It wasn't in Jeremiah's time. It wasn't in Noah's time. Noah was faithful for 120 years, and all he had was one message, judgment is coming. And he did not have one convert, except for the, the seven that were in his family. So I see a comparison there, and... I liken a lot of it to what I see taking place in our own country today. And um, so he never made a convert. He was rejected by his people. He was hated. He was beaten. He was put in stocks. He was imprisoned. And he was charged with being a traitor. And uh, there were other prophets that we're going to run into that were telling the people exactly what they wanted to hear. Sort of like Joel Olstein, your best life now. Jeremiah never had a book like that. He says, you guys, all that's in view is judgment. You're not getting around it. And uh, even though the Lord 
through Jeremiah, is going to beg him. You're going to see a little bit back, back and forth as we go through the book itself. But um, uh, we can surely identify with it. His message broke his own heart. He, he, he's not, um, uh, when you get into it, uh, he's, he's a soft-hearted man who, who brought himself to tears with his own message. He did not enjoy the message that he was given. He took no pleasure in it. But it was the word of the Lord. And um, judgment was absolutely imminent. Uh, he actually wanted to resign, but God wouldn't let him. Imagine being called by the Lord and all you have is negative things to say all the time during your whole ministry. That was Jeremiah. Uh, he saw the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. He was permitted to remain in the land by the captain of the Babylonian forces. When the remnant wanted to flee to Egypt, Jeremiah prophesied prophesied against it, telling them not to, but he was forced to go with the remnant to Egypt, and he died there, and traditions say that he was stoned by the remnant that went with him. So the very people that he was, the, the Jews that were fleeing from Nebuchadnezzar on the way down to, to Egypt, um, tradition, and this is outside of scripture, we so we don't know for sure, we know he died in Egypt, but uh, tradition says that he was stolen by his own remnant. So a little bit of the background, as far as figuring out the time period that he reigned and how old he is and all that, we find that in the first three verses of chapter 1. So let's dive in. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Now it came to pass in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the carrying away Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So what we have here in these first three verses, uh, this and the preceding verses give us the exact time of the ministry of Jeremiah from the 13th year of the reign of Josiah and continuing all the way to the time that you get um, um, Nebuchadnezzar coming and taking them into captivity. That happened in three different waves. Uh, The first wave that it came in, he sort of just, Nebuchadnezzar's um, general sort of scoped out who were the cream of the crop, who were the brightest, and he wanted them to be trained, and they were, I'm thinking of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and um, they were taken, of course, in the first siege. When we read here about uh, Zedekiah, uh, he would have been the last king before going into captivity. So the first three verses sort of set the stage for us as far as um, um, the length of his reign. And now his calling, where the Lord calls him. I want to get something from the Brian call as we get to this part here. Um, Verses 5 through 10. The word of the Lord came to me, and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Before you were born, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to whom all I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. I don't want you to be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord, And then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. And so what we have in these verses here, um, a couple things. First of all, he sees um, 
his own inadequacy in this calling. Um, I think of Moses when the Lord says, I'm going to send you, Moses, to set my people free. And he says, don't choose me, Lord. I'm a man of slow tongue, and I'm not a good public speaker. So Aaron's really good at that, so why don't you give Aaron that job? And the Lord pretty much said the same thing to Moses that he said to Jeremiah. I think of Gideon was the same. Why me? I'm the least in my father's house. And I, I don't want the job, but if, if you give me some signs, that I'll do it. And so the Lord gave him a sign. And it was, of course, where we get the terminology, the Christianese of putting out a fleece to the Lord to see if the Lord is in it. And um, he wanted... He wanted um, a sign from the Lord, and then that wasn't enough, so he wanted another sign from the Lord, so the Lord gave him two, and he says, all right, I'll do it. And so the similarities here of um, the Lord choosing, as it says, uh, uh, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He says, look amongst you. There's, there's not many wise, not many noble that are among you. And the Lord does this on purpose, because if he calls a man who realizes that he can't do it and it has to be the Lord, then the Lord gets the glory. But if you have a real charismatic type character, a lot of charisma, and so on and so forth, drawing power if you would, well, that's certainly not Moses, and it's certainly not Jeremiah. And um, he wanted out, says, look, I can't speak, and I, I'm just a kid. And um, the other thing that we see here in verse five is that before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet in the nations. Now, this begs the whole Roe v. Wade thing, goes back to 73. When, when does life begin? And abortion is the law of the land. And, um, you know, people have been trying to say, well, life begins here, life begins at uh, first trimester, second trimester, whatever. When does life begin? Well, the answer to that question uh, is given to us here. Before you were in the womb, I knew you. Well, how can you know somebody who's in the womb? Well, the Lord has created. And uh, this is followed up by David in Psalm 139, who says exactly the same thing. David said, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. David just says, look around. Just look at the human anatomy, your eyes, and, the, and the, uh, the miracle of what I'm doing right now by just doing this and being conscious of it, or the ability to, to speak and the ability to hear and retain, think it through, accept it, reject it, all these capacities. David says, my soul knows this very well. Uh, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. You saw my substance being yet unformed, and your books, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. Because God had it all laid out, and he, he knew every day of David's life. He has to. God knows everything. So from the very, very beginning, even before the womb, so I would say, when does life begin? Well, God knew you before you were in the womb. And um, um, a, a spirit that possesses a body, that basically that's what we are. Um, this is all flesh. It's getting older every single day. <laughs> and uh, it's going to come a time where it's just, it's just a vapor. It's just a very, very short period of time that we have. And... Um, uh, I get sidetracked on that, but there's one more thing I want to point out here, and that is that uh, what we have here is a calling. The Lord is commissioning and calling Jeremiah to be a prophet uh, over the nations, and the Lord says, I'm the one that's going to be behind it. Now let me just do a little sidetrack here and talk about the importance of your calling. Second Peter and chapter 1, verse 10 says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. If you're sure of your calling. Um, when I talk to young pastors or uh, 
people who feel they're being called into the ministry. I just have one question for them. And I quote 2 Peter 1.10. It says, I'll tell them, make sure that the Lord is in it. Make sure your calling and election is sure. Now, the reason this is so important is if you know that you're called and you have no doubt about that, um, what you're going to experience in ministry, um, I think ministry is the most blessed place to be on the planet. But I also believe it's one with the most trials in spiritual warfare. Um, and I, I think of Jeremiah here. Here he's called, and he, even though he wanted to quit in his heart, he couldn't because he had a calling f- from the Lord. So I tell the guys, just be sure that the Lord is in it. You, you need to know that because if you're not sure, the first time you go through a fiery trial, you're going to second guess yourself. But if you are called by the Lord, and you go through the fiery trial, it doesn't make any difference. Why does it make any difference? Because God called me, that's why. So either I'm going through the fire, or I'm on top of a mountain praising the Lord, it doesn't matter. What matters is, are you called? And so when I talk to the young guys, young pastors, I say, this is, this is really the most important thing because here we have Jeremiah, not one convert, and the only message is one that judgment is imminent and is coming to Jerusalem, period. Now, I got the Berean call today. And uh, T.A. and I have been friends for so many years. And uh, so I, I read it. And he's talking about being on the mission field. And um, how much respect that he has for the guys. And what they have to do in learning a new language, a new culture, adapting, bringing kids along. All the things that, that causes people to, to leave what they're doing and the comfort of American culture in going to a third world country. Now you gotta be called for something like that. But what TA does here and his beef that he has with some of the mission organizations is that they, re- they require um, psychological testing um, to, before they can be a part of some mission organizations. And uh, so he's writing this article and he says, that may sound reasonable to most Christians today, but it's, in fact, contrary to the results of research in that area as well as com- being completely unbiblical. Now, T.A.'s dad was a psychologist, and he was a shrink in, in, uh, in, in, L- in L.A. when, when T.A. was a, a film writer for Fox. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's what T.A. did before he was, he was in the Hollywood scene, a screenwriter, and so on and so forth. And um, he, he was raised um, by a father who was a psychologist. And uh, I, said, I remember asking him one time, I said, T.A., I said, I heard a rumor that the highest suicide rate in the professional community is among shrinks. Is that true or is that false? He says, it's absolutely true. Imagine sitting down and psychoanalyzing people, giving them answers that are not biblical, and then having to go home, lay your head on the pillow, and when you're honest with yourself, you know that you're not any different than the person that you were counseling. And uh, that's what you're, you're dealing with. Then he goes on to say this. He says, when it comes to missionary work, he says, first and most important and true to any work of ministry the individual must be certain that this endeavor is the calling of the Lord. Without that, it would be at best an exercise of the flesh, devoid of God's grace. It would, uh, what psychology tests can reveal, what, uh, this is a question, what psychology tests can reveal a person's calling? Answer, it can't. So either uh, you're called or you're not called. Um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to do this or not, but um, I'll tell you a story. Well, and they need to have you turn to first uh, little personal story here. Go back to First Kings chapter fourteen, and let's go down memory lane here just a, a little bit. Years nineteen seventy-two. I've been a Christian for a couple couple of years, and. Um, finally getting some meat on my bones after I was baptized in water and the spirit. 
And I witnessed to everybody and anybody at all times. I was fellowshipping with the first Shiloh house, house in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. A guy named Andy Papendick uh, was sent out by John Higgins, and we had our first Shiloh house. And me and my best friend, Pat Gauhan, were the first ones hanging out there. We were there every night. And like every Shiloh house, the routine is um, they would open it up to people. You get a free meal. Uh, you could have a nice place to stay if you needed a place to stay for the night. The only condition was you had to sit in on the Bible studies. Well, I was, I was totally amazed um, the anointing that I saw on this young kid. Well, we were young then. <laughs> and uh, his name was Andy Papendick. And he would, he would go up, he had long hair and a beard, and, and um, he had such a love for this book, and he just radiated whenever he was teaching. And so this is what I thought, he's a pastor, but he looks like a hippie. This, isn't, this, this was not downloading in, into my psyche at all. And I thought, well, if he can do that, then, then uh, and he's teaching that, well, I was witnessing to a lot of people, and a lot of people were, were getting saved, and Andy took note of it, and he cornered me one day. He says, Dwight, I have a word from the Lord for you. He says, the Lord is calling you into ministry, and um, that meant the Shiloh ministry. And I said, well, that's great, Andy. When the Lord shows me that, I'll let you know. And he says, well, okay, but um, I just want you to pray about it. And I said, well, how, how am I supposed to know for sure? And he says, well, God's going to show you through his word. I says, right, God's going to show me that I'm supposed to go to Shiloh by reading the word of God. Now remember, I'm just two years old in the Lord, so cut me some slack for what I'm about to say next. So Andy leaves, and I said, you heard it, Lord. He said that you're going to show me through your word that I'm supposed to go to Shiloh. And I realized what that meant. Um, and it meant a lot of me really having, having to die to myself in order to do something like that. So I did one of these things. And if you're in 1 Kings chapter 14, my finger landed, and I'm not kidding you, on three words in verse 2. It says, this is really about Jeroboam and his wife, which meant nothing to me. Please arise and disguise yourself that you may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam and go to Shiloh. <laughs> no, were my fingers, I didn't read any of them. I put my finger down and the words above it, I had a King James at the time, it said, get thee to Shiloh. And I went, holy smokes. I would like to tell you I was obedient and immediately obeyed the Lord. It took me another six months of constant wrestling, having no peace, until I said okay. And um, had a Bible study going on. Uh, they sent a guy out to take my place, and I went on and got involved in uh, the house ministries in Minneapolis, Minnesota, before I went on to our, our Bible school, which was outside of Eugene, Oregon. So just a little personal story about, I know that the Lord, and it was confirmed uh, many times since then, but um, there's no way that I can't say that I wasn't called. Um, and that's making your calling an election, sure. And um, in it, like I said, blessings, mountaintop experiences that you only see, I think, in ministry, um, you get to see the tip of that, but also um, the fiery darts, the trials are of a greater magnitude. All of the disciples, except for John, died of martyr's death, every single one of them. So as we set the stage, let's go back to Jeremiah. Here he has a call in his life, and when all is said and done at the end of his life, he dies in Egypt by the very people he's ministering to. All right, let's pick it up in verse um, 10 through 11 through 16 here. <clears throat> Moreover, uh, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And he said, I see a branch of an almond tree. And then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I'm ready to perform my word. And then the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, what do you see? 
And I said, I see a boiling pot and it is facing away from the north. And then the Lord said to me, it's going to be out of the north that calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, and they shall come, each one set his own throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all the walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness, because they have forsaken me. They burned incense to other gods, and they worship the works of their own hands. So here we have what the Lord said now he's going to do. Here's your message, Jeremiah. I'm going to bring a people from the north, and what we have in in view here is he's beginning to speak about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and inevitably what is going to happen down the road. But if we would apply this today and jump from Jeremiah's time, and when I said that we're going to identify big time um, with the nation of Israel in our own nation today, as we see the, exactly the same scenario, where we see a country in moral decay, it's collapsing from the inside morally, and, um, and we, as a nation that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, well, those days are long gone, and um, it's the days of Noah. Every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes, and... Um, living everyday life in general. Um, and, and we see people making gods really in their own image. So as I look at Israel today, where Ezekiel 38, where the danger is going to come from, what the Lord is going to do is bring Russia and Iran. These are the, the two key players that we talk about it often. But that would be... Um, in our time, what Benjamin Netanyahu as a, as a leader, but Bibi is very, very well aware of Bible prophecy. I mean, Dave Hawking gives Bible studies in, in his office with, with cabinet members, so Bibi knows what's going on. Uh, I don't know if he's a, a believer, but I know he's aware. And he's very aware um, what, what's at stake right now as the stage is being set, once again, for um, that battle to take place. Now, in verse 17 through the end, we have um, sort of Jeremiah being reassured here. He says, the Lord says, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest, lest I dismay you before them. For behold... I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and a bronze wall against the whole land. You're going to have a a tough road to plow here, Jeremiah, but I'm going to make you strong. I'm going to make make you able to continue with this message. And basically, it's just going to be me and you, Jeremiah. He says, against the kings of Judah and its princes and its priests and against the people of the land, they will fight against you. But, in other words, he's saying everything that's going to come back to you is going to be negative. You're not going to get, oh, you're doing such a great job, Jeremiah, pat on the back. None of that is going to be happening. They're going to fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Getting back now to your calling an election. Now, I believe that whatever, I believe every person should just go before the Lord and say, Lord, what have you called me to do? And um, lest I put a guilt trip on people and they get it wrong, it says, first of all, don't lay hands on any man suddenly, and don't let there be many teachers. So when it comes to the role of pastor teacher, the Bible actually tells us don't let there be many of them because to whom much is given, much is required. And with the role of pastor teacher, um, there, there comes with it that, that warning because 
you're going like this on Wednesday night Bible study. As Chuck always pointed out, when you do this, you got three fingers pointing right back at yourself. So my job is to make sure that we are able to say like the Apostle Paul, I am not shunned to declare all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And whatever it says, that's what we should speak. Now, when it comes to you, your job is to don't think that you should be, after hearing a Bible study like this, well, God is calling me, obviously, to be a missionary. No. He's wherever he calls you to be, that's what you need to have peace about in your own heart. Your job is to make sure you've done that. And after you're saved, Lord, here's my life. What do you want to do with it? I'll do what, what you want me to do. Well, to some of you, he might say, well, I've called you um, to be a carpenter because I'm going to put you in contact with people uh, as a carpenter, and you're going to have a sphere of influence in, in that area there. And um, the scriptures even tell us to remain in the position that we're in when we're first called. That's what Paul was speaking to one of, the, one of the churches. He says, what you were doing when you were first called, stay there, keep doing what you're doing, unless the Lord clearly shows you otherwise. So the point with all this here is so that you can have peace of heart and mind that you are where the Lord wants you to be. One, have you done that step? Have you said, Lord, here I am, send me. And, um, and a lot of times the Lord is, what the scriptures teach us is you, you remain in the calling unless he clearly calls you out otherwise. He clearly called Jeremiah out. But let's face it, there's only three major prophets in the whole Bible. Uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. They're the major ones. And then we have the minor ones, and they're only minor because their books are smaller. And again, the, the contemporaries were Habakkuk, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Zephaniah. Uh, they all ministered during the same period of time. All right, let's get dive into chapter 2. Here we have Jeremiah's first sermon. And um, I'm going to read it, and we'll come back um, to it. First 14 verses, I guess. <clears throat> All right. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, I want you to go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. He says, I remembered you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothed, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his incense. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel, for thus says the Lord. What injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone from me? In other words, the Lord said, what did I do wrong? Uh, that I brought you into the land that I promised I would bring you into, but when you got into the land, your deeds became such that they were worse than the nations that I drove out. Uh, they, you have followed idols. You've become idolaters. Neither did they say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? The one who led us through the wilderness, provided for us day and night with manna and water out of the stone, a pillar of fire by by night and a cloud of protection for shades for the day. Through the lands of the deserts and the pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt, I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. They called it the land of, of course, flowing with milk and honey. But when you entered it, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abominations. Now the priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. Now this gets into Ahab and Jezebel. And when Jezebel came into the land, she brought with it Baal worship. And... Um, and they walked after things that, the, that they did not profit. So here the Lord, basically what he's saying, 
I promised you, I delivered you from the bondage that you were in and um, brought you to this land that is well watered and it wasn't long and you were completely doing worse than the the people that were there. Just real quickly, turn back to uh, Deuteronomy um, chapter 18 and we'll see that the Lord is going to warn them about this before they actually get there. Deuteronomy 18 Verse 9, it says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, so this is before they come in, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. Um, This was actually the worship of Moloch, where they actually um, offered their children to be sacrificed or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Well, what this verse tells me is that the Lord himself is, is acknowledging the demonic realm and the list that goes with it. One third of the Lord's ministry was casting demons out of people. And uh, so here was the warning. They did not heed the warning. And now time has come where the Lord has been patient, but now he's sending Jeremiah. Verse 9. Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children, I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently, and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their, their glory. For what does not profit? Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, evil number one, the fountain of living water, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jesus talked about living waters, and here the Lord is saying, that you could have been satisfied with me and I would have blessed you if you would have walked in my ways. That was the promise. But instead, they made themselves cisterns and the idea here, it was cracked and it couldn't hold any water. So here we have the the two indictments. They forsook the Lord, number one, and um, number two, they got into all the evil practices that were warned about in, in Deuteronomy. Now, in chapters 2 through 6, uh, were given during the first five years of Jeremiah's ministry. And since he began to prophesy in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, these messages were given in those five years. What we're reading in chapters 2 through 6 is the first five years of Jeremiah's ministry. And it's during that time where Josiah was reigning, and uh, it was before the finding of the book. Now, some of you understood what I just said, and some of you didn't understand. So that you do understand what the finding of the book was during Josiah's time, and remember, they're contemporaries, that we need to go back to Second Chronicles chapter 34, and I'll give you a little time to get there. Chronicles is after First and Second Kings. You have First and Second Chronicles. So I want to go to chapter thirty-four, and as we read these, basically they're evaluations of the kings, whether they were good, whether they were bad. Um, if you look at chapter thirty-three, let's look at Manasseh, one of the worst ones. And this is the reoccurring how every chapter would begin. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil 
in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So there you have Manasseh doing evil, but when we get to chapter 34, we have Josiah. Now we read that Josiah was eight years old and when he became king. <laughs> Imagine being eight years old and you're, you're the king of the land, but you're being raised by a, by a godly priest. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of his father David. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. A little bit more evaluation, verses 3 through 7. Now, in the eighth year of his reign, so 8 and 8 is 16, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and, and the wooden images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altar, which were above them, he cut down. The wooden images, the carved images, the molded images, he broke in pieces, and he made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on the altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with axes. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into potter and, and cut down all the incense throughout the land. And then he has the reforms where he begins to repair the temple. And while there, let me see if I can find it. Da, 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 da. Picking it up in verse, well, we've got to go to verse 14. Um, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. So here they are doing repairs to the temple because it had just been laid in waste, so they got a building project going on. And in the middle of the building project, the high priest finds a copy of the word of God. They didn't have one. And then Hilkiah answered it and said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. And so Shaphan carried the book to the king, this would be Josiah, bringing the king word saying, all that was committed to your servants and all their doings. They have gathered the money and that was found in the house of the Lord, and they have delivered it into the hands of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And uh, Shaphan read it before the king. And it happened when the king heard the words of the Lord that he tore his clothes. And then the king commanded Hilkiah and the sons of Zaphon, and they're mentioned here. It says, go inquire of the Lord for me, for those who are left in Israel and Judah, concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. So imagine wanting to do right. Let's go back to Jeremiah. And remember, these guys were contemporaries. They knew each other. They were friends. And now Josiah comes for the first time. He has the word of God read to him. And basically it's saying what we just read in Deuteronomy. Maybe you read Deuteronomy 18. I don't know. But all he knows is they're in big trouble. And um, he goes and and uh, this is where uh, the reforms during Josiah's times were, were temporal. Okay, I left it off in verse 19. No, I left it off in verse 14. It says, <clears throat> is, 
Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. The cities are burned without inhabitants, and the people of Noth and Tephamis have broken the crown on your head. Have you not brought this on yourself, in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river, which would have been the Euphrates? Your own wickedness will correct you, and your own backsliding will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and a bitter thing, that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. So the scriptures teach the importance of having this reverence of the holiness of the Lord, and it's the fear of the Lord that really brings about real true wisdom. Good place for an amen. A healthy fear, and it's a reverence for the Lord. When I... um, uh, I was watching just TV tonight, and um, they were just talking about a couple teenage kids that were texting, and their car drifted over, and they were both killed. And um, all I can think of, I was thinking of their age, and uh, they were past the age of accountability. And you see, I know all too well what happens when somebody dies. I, neither, I know they're either going to heaven or they're going to hell. And that's the first thing when I hear about somebody dying, that's the first thing I wonder about. Did they know the Lord? And are they in heaven or are they in hell? Because wherever they are, they're there forever. And that um, is is important to talk about often because it, it brings about the fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. And the only way you can really have that godly fear of the Lord is realizing that he has spoken He has set standards. We don't live up to those standards. And the only way that we have a chance, excuse my French, in hell, literally not to go to hell, is by accepting the only um, way that the Father has chosen for man's salvation, and that is to accept the sacrificial sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross. And apart from that, there's no way to heaven. Good place for day, man. So there's absolutes here in my point. There were absolutes that they broke here, and the Lord is pouring out his heart saying, what could have any father done more that I've done in bringing you to this place? And instead of loving me and fearing me and honoring me, you become worse than the people that I drove out before. And he calls them being backslidden in verse 19. Your own, your own wickedness will correct you. And your own backsliding will reprove you. Know, therefore, and see that it's an evil and a bitter thing, that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. For of old I have broken your oak and burst your bonds. And you say, I have not transgressed. Um, That would be equivalent today for a person saying, well, I'm a good person. (laughs) I like that when people say that. Oh, I'm a good person. You think you go to heaven? Sure. And and they're thinking, um, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as good as this guy. I'm somewhere in the middle. And I'm pretty sure that the good is going to outweigh the bad. But the Lord says, unless you've done everything perfectly, and you have to keep all the law, and if you offend in one point, then you're guilty of all of it. So either you've got to live a perfect life, never have a sinful thought, never told a lie, never stole, and then... If, if you can do that, you can say to the Father, move over on the throne, there's two of us. But um, I don't think that's going to happen. Because what this book is, is it's like looking into a mirror. It reveals our real nature. And we'll deal with more of that on Sunday. Um, but the Lord is just laying out his, his uh, case here. Let's pick it up, verse 23. How can you say, I have not... Um, polluted. Oh no, I'll, we, I missed a couple of verses here. Um, 19? 21. 
Yet I have planted you a noble, a noble vine and a seed of the highest quality. How then have you turned before me into this degenerate plant of an alien vine? For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. How can you say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after the bales. See your ways in the valley, know that you, what you have done. You are swift, dromedary, breaking loose in her ways. A wild donkey uh, used in the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire. And in her time of mating, who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves. In her mouth they will find her. Withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, there is no hope. No, I have loved aliens and after them I will go. As the thief is ashamed when he is found out. So is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets, they say to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone, you gave birth to me. You know, it's just crazy. It's ludicrous. And um, yet that's exactly what they were doing. You have, they have turned their back on me and, and not their faces. But in a time of their trouble, they will say, arise and, and save us. But where are your gods that you have made for yourself? Let them arise. If they can save you in the time of trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. They had so many different gods that they were worshiping. And the Lord is just laying it out. And he's calling them out. He says, why will you plead with me? It's a question. You have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain I have chastened your children. They receive no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying iron lion. O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of dryness? Why do my people say, we are lords? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten my days without number. And again, the Lord's just laying out his case. There's certain things that are, that are natural, like, like a virgin uh, getting ready or a bride for her attire. They don't forget that. Uh, they want to look beautiful for their special day, but the Lord says, Not my people don't do that. They, they've forgotten my days without number. Why do you beautify your ways to seek love? Therefore, you have also taught the wicked woman your ways. And also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor and innocent. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly in all these things. Yet you say, because I'm innocent, surely his anger will turn away from me. And what's going to happen as we go along, gang, is there will come other prophets that are going to say that Jeremiah is a false prophet and don't listen to a word he has to say. And... Um, and basically, they'll tell the people what they want to hear. And by now, you're getting a feel for the tenor of the book. And it's a back and forth. I did everything I could for you. And yet you've made gods out of trees and out of stones. And um, call upon them when, when your day of trouble comes. Verse 36, why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected your trusted allies, and you shall not prosper by them. All right, as we get, uh, this is um, Jeremiah's first uh, sermon that he has. When we get to chapter 3, we have... Um, the first couple of verses, we have the first couple of verses of chapter three. We've got to find my notes on this real quick. 
Okay, 1 to 14. We have the, the same continuing thought up till verse, the first five verses really are a continuation of chapter 2. They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not the land be greatly polluted? So the answer to that question is you shouldn't. But the Lord says, but you've played the harlot with many lovers. And he says, yet I want you to return to me, says the Lord. So even though they've rejected him, the Lord still loves these people. And he wants them to come back. He says, lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see. Where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them. Like at, like at Arabian in the wilderness. And you have polluted the land with your harlotry and your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and they have, there have been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. Will you not from this time cry to me? My father, you are the guide of my, of my youth. Uh, will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. Now, these first five verses here um, really are a continuation of, of, of chapter two. Um, Judah ignores Israel's example. Now, Israel has, has already fallen by this time because the, the 10 tribes were taken by the king of Assyria. And Verses 6 through 10, the idea here is that Judah didn't learn the lesson that Israel fell into. When I say Israel, I mean the 10 northern tribes. He said, basically, you saw them go into captivity, and now it's sometime later, now it's going to happen to you. Verse 6, the Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain, on every green tree, and there played the harlot. Obviously, there's some sort of sexual immorality that is taking place as a form of their worship on these high places. But I said, after she had gone, all these things, he says, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. So here we have the Lord you know, speaking through the prophets to the ten northern tribes, uh, return, repent, and if you don't, you're going to go into captivity. Well, that's exactly what happened. I think it was 710 B.C., if I remember the date right. And he says, Judah, you saw it, and you didn't learn from it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah didn't fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all her treacherous uh, sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. So it was an outward Maybe head thing, but nothing from the heart. Uh, In verses um, 11 through 14, we have uh, Judah is called by the Lord to repent and return. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, backslidden Israel, says the Lord, and I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord, and I will not remain angry for, forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. Isn't that the whole gospel right there? Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. So it's an issue of doing a really good self-evaluation and agree with the Lord that there's... None that is good. 
that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked of all, of all things who can know it and just agree with the Lord and it, admit your sin. And um, that's what he's calling Israel to do. Just fess up, admit that you blew it, and I'll take you back. Um, that you have transgressed against me, the Lord your God, and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backslidden children, says the Lord, for I am married to you, and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Now, verse 15, one of the things, again, that we want to be conscious of, and I've made a point of it at almost every um, book that we've gone through, is that we can be reading along, and all of a sudden, the Lord will jump ahead into the millennium. Well, here's one of those places. The tenor of the book up till this point is the calling of Jeremiah, number one. Uh, The tone of his message is one that he's going to tear down, break down. Uh, He has, he reveals the heart of the Lord that the Lord wants them to come back, but they won't fess up their iniquities. They haven't learned their lesson by the example of their sister Israel in the north. And then in verse 15, we jump into the millennial age. And he tells them what he's going to do for them, even despite the judgment that he's going to bring to Judah by using Nebuchadnezzar. So when we get to verse 14, this is future tense. Even as I'm teaching tonight, this has not yet been fulfilled. He says, I will give you shepherds according to my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And uh, I have a, a Bible that's a prophecy Bible here, and whenever there's a prophecy about future, it's highlighted in red. And um, it'll come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of, of the Lord, to Jerusalem, and they shall walk no more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I've given as an inheritance to your fathers. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the host of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn from me. Surely as a treacherous, as wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Okay, now we bounce back. Have you noticed? We were in the millennium. The Lord's going to give them um, shepherds that will give them understanding. All the nations are going to come to Jerusalem and walk before the Lord. And then we, the Lord shifts back to this um, treachery, and he uses the example here of a treacherous a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O host of Israel. A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplication of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten the Lord their God. But again, return, you backslidden children, and I'll heal your backsliding. Indeed, uh, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitudes of the, of the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. 
we and our fathers from one youth even to this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. What we've gone through as we've started um, this new book, go back and um, as we wind up in this third chapter, Again, chapters two through six, and we made it through three tonight. This would have taken place during uh, Jeremiah's uh, first five years. Second thing to remember, that he was friends with Josiah. They were co-laborers. And um, he's ministering right now before the fall of Jerusalem, but he's going to, to be present when it actually falls. And um, he's also present afterwards. Again, he never made a convert. He was rejected by his people. He was hated, beaten, and put in stocks. His message, what he has to do, if you put yourself in, in um, this prophet's sandals, is you, you have words of judgment coming out on one hand, and the heart of a loving God who wants them to repent and to return, verse 22, return your backs to the children and I'll heal you. Just stop worshiping these gods. But what we're going to find out as we go that um, um, even under the reforms of Josiah, it wasn't enough to, for the Lord to withhold allowing Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to come and actually take the city. So, uh, we got a good start, and we're right at our time, and um, let's stand, and we'll close with a word of prayer. First three chapters of Jeremiah. Lord, as we close tonight, we, we see a broken-hearted prophet. What a roller coaster ride this guy was on, speaking your word, pronouncing judgment on one hand, and a bleeding heart um, begging them to return from their backslidden ways. And your word tells us all he's looking for was them to confess and admit their transgressions, their treachery, that their idol worship was in the open and they weren't ashamed of it, and they didn't learn the lesson from their sister Israel. Lord, as we consider um, our own times, we have to admit that we see a nation that has forsaken you, They have made their own gods, and uh, we are no longer following you as a nation. So now it comes down to our individual walks with you. And Lord, we give you permission tonight to, um, again, search our hearts and point out anything that might be taking first place other than you. Thank you for the beautiful worship tonight and the love songs that we can sing to you and help us learn our lessons as um, we see a nation not not walking with you. So, Lord, thank you for this book. I pray for it. Bless us as we go out tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.